Good to be with you today to open up God's Word. Something I'd like to say is um, it's that it was uh, at our prayer meetings, which we've been having some good turnouts for. We've, uh, God's blessed us with uh, answers to prayers already for, um, I know that uh, an email was sent out about the family that the, uh, the Whiteheads are working with, and uh, we read that um, there's been some temporary housing for them, which was an answer to prayer. Uh, I had, uh, outside of the other, the ones that we've known about uh, publicly here, about, you know, uh, my job and, and uh, my, the passing of a couple family members, um, I also had some community issue in my, on, my, uh, on my street and uh, prayed for, it's been a, a, a long kind of uh, battle that we've had with um, a house across the street from us. Um, and I, there was some damage done to my house and uh, it looked like there was going to not be any any help coming from their side uh, with no sense of, uh, of ownership of what had happened and uh, certainly a hard heart toward me when, uh, toward us when we tried to uh, work with them to try to come to some reconciliation. But uh, the Lord answered prayer because uh, after a couple of days there was uh, uh, an apology and a um, uh, recognition that they were at fault and uh, to be reimbursed. So I was um, really thankful because I didn't know how that was going to go f go uh, forward. But I just am thankful to see that Lord, the Lord answer prayers from our prayer meeting. So uh, just uh, it's such a encouragement to be able to pray with God's people and to uh, hear that our prayers have been answered by God's grace. So uh, let's turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. And before I read, let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your guidance this morning as we open up your word that your spirit will be with us as we desire him to be and we desire uh, you, dear Lord, our Father, and, and we pray for your presence along with Jesus to be able to help us understand to embrace, to desire, to have a growing appetite for your word. We pray, Father, that you will be with us as we gather here this day, that you have given us this day to feast upon your love and your, your fellowship through your word and through the community of saints that we are gathered here today with. We thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that you give us through your spirit, when we are alone. We thank you, Lord, for giving us here at Hope your encouragement as we gather together as a family. Lord, 
we thank you for giving us a taste of what heaven will be like. We realize, Lord, that it is not always that way. We realize, Lord, that there, as have been in the past, moments of difficulties, disagreements, and yet, Lord, we are still here. And we thank you for preserving this church and pray for your power to be felt in our lives, but also in the proclamation of your word now. So we ask these things because there is no one else to go to, to ask, and no one else can supply. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at chapter 8, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, reading verses 1 through 11. This is a a, uh, a, a section, uh, most people agree that this is a section, but within this section of verses 1 through 11, uh, we're looking at 1 through 4, which we looked at last time, and today we're going to be looking at, uh, along with uh, just kind of getting back with uh, 1, through three, 1 through 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and then next, next week we'll be looking at verses 9, 10, and 11, and then the following week, verses 12 through 17. So, there, in, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of, his sin, of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that or the purpose being that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live, or since those who live according to the flesh, sent their, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life, is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Chapter 8 is, uh, from anybody you listen to preach on it, will say this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, it has the gospel in, in uh, condensed form. It uh, speaks uh, a lot about the Holy Spirit, which we're going to be looking at next week. Even though the Spirit is mentioned throughout, it is 
mentioned here and uh, talked about in a very profound way of how he works in our life, how he transforms us, how he preserves us, how he changes our perspective, how God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who uh, works within us. Because the Father plans and the Son accomplished it for us, and the Spirit then implements that in our life. I want to uh, want you to uh, look at uh, a, a verse with me on chapter 15. I'm just going to look at it and read it and talk about it briefly. Chapter 15, verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 14. Sorry, verse 14. Romans 15, 14. Now we're going to be looking at this passage probably within the next couple years. Uh, but uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be uh, ruining anything. But if, if you look at verse 14, it says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Uh, some, some translate that, competent to counsel one another. And um, I wonder if you feel competent to counsel. I wonder if you feel competent to instruct one another. Because Paul, after this is all the way through this book now, we've gotten to this point, and uh, he has in, in bringing this uh, to the saints at the Church of Rome. And if you haven't been reading along with me, or you haven't been here to listen, or you haven't heard of it before, the book of Romans is an exhaustive book about, uh, about the, the, the love of God, the, the wrath of God, the, the, the substitute of Christ, the uh, propitiation, how he turns away God's wrath, how righteousness is not attained by anyone or anything other than Jesus, and so that's why we need to run to him. And talks about how God looks at humanity, biblical anthropology. And so I'm going to present to you a situation where, uh, or something that is uh, from the Westminster Confession, but is a, can be a very uh, a situation, a scenario, an experience. The reason, and I'm going to do this because one of my favorite professors at Gordon-Conwell was uh, Garth Rosell, and he was a a pleasant, humble man, uh, and uh, just was a great person to have as a teacher in our church history. And, you know, some people can look at history like blah, right? If you look at church history classes in school, uh, and some people can look at church history the same way as they look at theology. Uh, uh, Dr. David Wells, as I've read many, many years ago, wrote a book on, on um, uh, the uh, God of the Wasteland talking about in reaction to a seminary student coming up to him and saying, you know, 
I'm going into the pastorate, and I know I need some practical classes in pastoral theology, but do I really have to take classes in theology? And <laughs> Dr. Wells writes this book. In fact, he writes five books, I believe, uh, in a response to that because wh why wouldn't you, <laughs> as a pastor, take classes in theology? Um, but Dr. Rosell was great. Dr. Rosell uh, just made life practical and made uh, script, um, church history practical, and our, and our exams were very practical. We would learn about historical events that took place in the church. And, uh, for example, um, he, we talked about the life of Augustine, and... Um, uh, who is the, one of the, the fathers of Reformed theology from uh, the 4th century and a bishop in Egypt and um, just wrote some of the most foundational theological uh, doctrines of, uh, from Scripture about Reformed theology where Calvin and all of the others just built on that. Uh, but Augustine was a very, very uh, uh, precocious person uh, he lived a very, uh, very uh, rambunctious life. He did not uh, withhold from himself any kind of appetite. And um, so if uh, he has written a book called His Confessions, where he talks about how his, his old life and how the Lord has uh, changed his life and... Um, and I, I call it, that's Augustine. And just to let you know, there's Augustine and then there's Augustine, and they're both the same spelling. But how I learned to help keep the differences, because there's Augustine, uh, the reformer, and then there's, in my mind, Augustine, the, theo the, the Catholic theologian. And so I, don't, I, I usually use, when somebody's talking to me, I always say Augustine, so I remind myself of uh, and make sure that we keep track of that we're talking about the, the reformer uh, Augustine, uh, and then we're not, I'm not talking about the very profound but yet uh, very different theologian Augustine. So, uh, but Augustine wrote this book, and we, we talked about his book and we talked about his, uh, his life. And so one of the final, one of the exams on the, on the uh, you know, the sectional test that we took, he wrote in there and he, he would put this, he goes, you have, a, you have someone in your church, either in your youth group or in your church, that is struggling with sin in, his, in their life, his or her life. And, and, and knowing the life of Augustine and knowing the, the, how God changed Augustine and knowing from his confessions, how would you use that understanding of church history to minister to this person who's struggling with sin in their life or struggling with their understanding of are they a believer? And he did that throughout, and it always made such perfect sense, and it just made it so pastoral and just so applicable from discipleship that I, I wanted to do that today too here because we can read this stuff and it can become, uh, you know, it's the theology and, and, it, and, and Paul repeats it and he talks about it and I repeat it and talk about it and keep on bringing it back because it's so important based upon what he's all previously said to what he's built upon now that for the next three weeks, I promise I won't go back and bring things forward. But 
we have, it's been a while, so I wanted to just include verses 1, uh, 8, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. But here is the scenario from the Westminster Confession, and it's chapter 5, and it's called Providence. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God often leaves his own children for a time to manifold temptations and to the corruption of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their past sins, to humble them by making them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, and then to raise them to a closer, more constant dependence upon himself for their support, to make them more watchful against all future occasions for sinning, and to fulfill various other just and holy purposes. So how would you be an encouragement? How would you counsel? How would you be an encouragement to this person who is struggling, struggling with sin in their life? Well, my hope is that you would go to Romans 8, because the very first verses, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you would sit down with this person and you would ask them, well, what is it that you believe in? Who do you believe in? What is Christianity? What is the gospel? And again, as I've said to you as many times, give you all a, 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 an index card and, and I ask you, please answer, what is the gospel? And I'm sure I would get all different kinds of answers. Some be close, maybe some be pretty far away. Some would be more detailed and others be kind of vague. Here we see that he is, he is rejoicing in the fact that now, in spite of knowing who we are, knowing that as the scriptures teach us, that we are been created in the image of God, and because of Genesis 3, this image is now fractured. It is now broken. So that we still reflect, but it is not the reflection of the image that God had intended for us to be the image bearers in the world. And as we looked at chapter 7, we saw how there was this angst, this struggle going on in the heart of either a believer or someone who, is, um, uh, who has depended upon the old law and the Old Testament to make them righteous with God, and when they've come down to it, they realize that they've been a complete failure, and they're never, ever going to be able to find righteousness and peace with God by obedience to the law. Or to the saint who is struggling, realizing that no matter how they try to live a life that is glorifying to God, they realize that the the sinful nature that we have gotten from Adam, and remember, again, if you go back to really key verses, uh, passages, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, because that's where the, 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 the categories are given to us, in Adam and in Christ. The first Adam, the last Adam, and all those different categories about life, and death and life, and, and wrath and, and blessing and, and uh, blindness 
and being able to see the very different world that we live in. We don't live anymore, he says. We've died to that kingdom. We don't live in this world of Adam anymore. You and I are not children of Adam if we are in Christ. We are now dead to that because chapter 7 now tells us that he has died. That, that, that person, that old person has died. And our relationship with Adam is done. So now we can marry another, and now we've been wed to Christ, the bridegroom. And we are married to Christ, and we are now to do something that when we think of weddings, is that they, you, you leave, and then you cleave, and then you weave. Right? You weave a whole new life. You weave a life together with the things of, that, are, that you love within your old life, but now together you take new traditions and you bring new children into the world if God blesses. And you, you, make, a, you make together a, a, a ministry to the world together, edifying each other and encouraging each other in the Lord. And I pray that, that, that you see that uh, uh, now we are so different. We no longer are these people as Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the old is gone. It's dead. The new has come. We are, we are brand new people. We live a completely different life. And so he says, because, as he says here, there now is no condemnation. The, the, the anger, the wrath that God has promised us in the book of Romans, from chapter 1 all the way through, that the wrath that we deserve because of our disobedience and because of the appetites and the way that we've learned to live as children of Adam, those are now gone. They are now taken away. We have now been justified by faith. And so verse 1 says to us here, he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we've been justified by faith in Jesus, which means it's a declaration that we, have, we are now in the eyes of God as if we have never sinned. And I hope you never get tired of hearing me say that or Pastor Nate saying that because we love saying that because it's amazing to believe that God looks at you and me after the week we may have had, after the life we've been living, after we know what's within us, and yet God sees his son Jesus, whom he is well pleased. And so now, legally, we are no longer in debt to God. We are no longer, we no owe nothing to God other than our love to him because Jesus has paid it all. It's finished. The work of redemption is done. Remember what I talked about when Sinclair Ferguson said in uh, some place, I believe in Europe or maybe his home country of Scotland, he said that there would be a, a sign put out on, on, the, on the public notice and saying that Sinclair Ferguson was justified today, which means that he had been, the death penalty had been given to him and that he no longer owed society any debt. He owed no one a debt. The debt's been paid. He's given his life. His, his debt is gone. But that's what's happened to us in Christ. In Christ, we are now justified by faith. We are now 
completely right with God because of the work that Jesus has done for us. And that's what he's talking about in verse 1. And in verse 2, for the law of the Spirit, and he's not talking about the Sinai law, the Moses' law, but he's talking about the operating principle of our life. It's like you have Apple or you have Microsoft, right? What's operating on your computer? That's what's the operating principle in your life. And he says here, for God, for the law of the spirit of life, the principle of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And what does that mean? He says now we can now be holy. We can now live a holy life. We can now do what the Lord wants us to do, not because we gain favor with God, but because we have been given favor with God because of Christ. Paul Peter writes, therefore, in, in chapter 1, verse 13 and following, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And the writer of Hebrews says this, without holiness, no one can see the Lord. So you see how imperative it is for us to have a holy life, a pure life, a life that looks very different than what we ever knew in Adam before coming to Jesus. That person is dead, but yet the patterns, the operating system, the, the, the appetites are brought into this life and we have to learn to say no to it. And Paul writes to us in Romans that it's going to be a struggle because we kind of liked these things. And then over here we realize that now we're, 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 our hearts are supposed to be changing. And this is where uh, this book by Craig Troxell, uh, somebody from Gordon-Conwell who's now a, a professor, he wrote this book where I'm reading with uh, some other friends of mine called With All Your Heart, and he writes here, he says, uh, the mind does not encompass the heart, but the heart encompasses the mind. So our thinking is closely related to the chambers of our heart. Our desires and our will significantly influence our mind, just as our thinking affects our desires and our will. God shaped our hearts in such a way that our thinking functions properly only if our desires and our will are right with God. Puritan Richard Sibbs says this, and because knowledge and affection mutually help one another, it is good to help to keep up affections of love and delight by all sweet inducements and divine encouragements. For what the heart liketh best, the mind studieth the most. Those that can bring their hearts to delight in Christ know most of his ways. When our affections are right, then our thoughts are too. And this is where, he, where uh, Paul goes on and says, he says in verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Now notice here, 
we see the Trinity. And I don't know if I brought that up last time. But we see the Trinity. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son. So he's talking about the father. And then he talks about the son. So it has to be God the son. And then it says here that uh, in, uh, in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And he says about the spirit in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. So we see the Trinity very much involved in every part of our life. It's understanding the Trinity is so important to us. It is a difficult concept to grasp, but it is very important because we would not know who Jesus was. We would not know who the Father was unless it was the work of the Spirit, the work of the Son, and the work of the Father and the Son sending the Spirit to us. And so we need to understand, we need to dig in, and we need to find out if you, you know, what is the Trinity about, and what is the justification by faith, and what is sanctification, and that's what sanctification is, becoming holy. We must be holy, but before we become holy, we must be justified. And then when we're justified, for us to show in our life is to bear fruit, that we've been justified, so now we live like Jesus. And then he says here in verse 4 that the righteous requirement of the law, meaning that you and I can't do it, right? It says that we could not, the, 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 what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law was given to us by God. Again, we've talked about this several times. For us to understand what sin was, to understand how holy God is, to understand how sinful we are, and to understand why God tells us that we deserve wrath upon us. There's no way that we can be justified by following the law. The law doesn't justify us, and if you've heard me mention it before, the law does not sanctify us. The laws on the road, the laws that we live by, doesn't change anyone's heart. It just changes our behavior. So we bear fruit as if our apple tree didn't bear any fruit, so we went to the Aldi's, bought apples, and stapled them on the tree. That's what it is by following the law. We're manually putting them there. We're doing something that did not come from within us. We're doing it to take care of a checklist and to make sure that we comply so we don't get caught and get in trouble. And doing these things, the requirements of the law, doesn't make you a believer or not. By doing the things that it says here, living according to what the Lord wants us to live by does not necessarily make us a Christian. Because you and I know, by being a pastor, I don't have to be a Christian. By you being here today doesn't mean that you're a Christian. By you bringing your Bibles, coming to Bible study, going to prayer meeting, doesn't mean you're a Christian. It's not to say those things are bad, and of course those are great things to do because it helps us in our knowledge, but none of those things make us believers. It's like you've heard me say before, just because I go into the garage to get my lawnmower out while I'm in the garage, it doesn't make me a car. Right? As it goes, I go to, you know, anywhere. I go to the gym. It doesn't make me a basketball player. 
It's just that the Lord wants our hearts to change. The Lord gives us his spirit to change our hearts, to change the way we think. And that's where we're looking at today, where he says, for we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's a whole new way of living. It's a whole new way of walking. So verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, and what he's doing now, he's going to contrast. It's so important to understand that we see this, the Trinity of God changing our lives, making us at peace with God, doing something that you and I cannot do. The law cannot do. And then he gives us a whole new walk. For us to walk, we have to walk a different way. And so he says, for those who live according to the flesh, what do they do? They set their minds. Notice that. He says, for those who walk according to the flesh, set their minds. And so what does set your mind on? And I wrote several words down uh, from people saying, uh, when you set your mind to doing something, it preoccupies us, it drives us, it engrosses us, it, we give ourselves up to it, we subject ourselves under it. And it's not just the process of ideas through our brain, but in a stronger sense of a settled and focused activity of life, we set our mind to this. It's like when, when Jesus in Luke 9, it is said, that Jesus set his mind, in the, in the old version, like a flint to Jerusalem. Jesus was not ever going to not go to Jerusalem. And that's what happens to you and I when we're in Adam, is that we set our life, we set our minds on a way of life that we choose. And I can tell you that no matter how religious I was of growing up before I became a Christian, I did not set my mind on the things of God. I set my mind on the church's calendar and, and time frames and did what I had to do and jumped through the hoops, but I did not set my mind. Though I could look at the people across the street and saying, wow, they're terrible people. Thankfully, I'm not them. But I set my mind in a way that I wanted to, based upon my passions, based upon my desires, my evenings, my days. What do I want to do? Do I focus on power? Do I focus on my career? Do I want money? Do I want fame? Do I want to satisfy, like Augustine, every kind of appetite in your body? And the answer is yes, all of it. Because that's the way we live. That's who we are. That's who we are in the fall. We, we now are separated from God. We are not with God, and God's favor is not upon us. As it says in Romans, do you believe what Romans teaches us? That the wrath of God is upon people who don't follow him and don't love him. For those who, are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, how can I satisfy myself? And man, do we live, not in an age, but we do live in a world, no matter how far back we go, it's always that way. How do I live my life for me? But those, right, got separation here, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul is delineating here, because the, as it says here, the flesh, the word is sarks. 
I'm not trying to impress you with Greek, but the thing is, is that the word carnal, you've heard of the word carnal. And many times, which messed me up as a new believer, was that I was hearing people talking about being a carnal Christian. And I was saying, oh man, what a carnal Christian. You know, and God is not doing that here. Paul is not saying that there's two types of Christians, a Christian who is carnal and a Christian who is not. No, he's talking about unbelievers and believers. There's only one group, believers, right? That's it. No matter how difficult your life is, no matter, as it says here, God has allowed temptations in your life, you have fallen by, by your own desires and your own appetites. You struggle with sin in your life. You struggle with things in your life. You don't know what direction you're going, and you find yourself battling all kinds of things. And as you know, I just feel like there's been a wave of stuff happening in my life. You know, like when? Okay, Lord. Wow, another thing. Oh, another person dies. Uh, somebody else in my family dies. Oh, somebody throws something through my window. I lose my job. How are, we gonna, how are you going to be able to come alongside someone and counsel them, instruct them? Are you prepared to do that? Or do you say, here's Pastor Nate's number, here's Pastor Jim's number? Which is not a bad thing to do, but you should be able to. You should be able to come alongside someone and give them hope. Be able to ask them questions. Be able to talk to them and saying, well, what is it that you're worrying about? You know, really reflective listening. What is it that you believe in? Do you believe you're a Christian? Well, this is what I believe in. And this is what, you know, God's given us right here through Paul's writing, a standard. You either set your mind on the things above or you set your things on earth, your mind on the flesh. What do you think about when you're not having, as, as uh, John Owen used to ask in his writing says, what do you think about when you have nothing to think about? What, where does your mind go? What's the default thing where your mind goes? You know, the, is, it, is it a person? Is it something you want to take care of, an itch you want to scratch? Is it uh, uh, a job? Is it someplace you want to go? You, I mean, where, what does your mind go to when you're not thinking of anything? Is your mind consumed with the things of God? I mean, yeah, we've got jobs and we've got families and we've got to do things that are common grace. But in that and throughout the day, do you find yourself talking to the Lord when you find yourself in need? When I want to run somebody off the road because they annoy me, do I have to confess in the car all the time? Do I pray about that? I say, Lord, forgive me? Because I know it's, it's, it's you know, I, I just have a mindset now to think about God because he is my all in all. But don't fool yourselves. I'm awful, a terrible sinner as well. So why don't I want to make Jesus more precious than silver or gold? <laughs> not when I want something, not when I feel justified, not when I feel right. So that's where this battle comes in with, with the flesh because we still have these appetites, and we're always going to have these appetites, as we've talked about, and Paul has been very honest and very open in saying, you're going to struggle with this temptation. You're going to struggle with this desire 
of the flesh. Even though the old man is dead, now don't forget this, we don't have a human nature and a spiritual nature. Only Jesus has two natures. We've only got one. And that human nature is dead. It's died in Christ. We are no longer in Adam. We are the new creation. We are now a new person in Christ. We now live differently, think differently, eat differently. I no longer look at Christ, Paul says, in the same way that I used to. In fact, I don't look at anything the same way because my eyes have been changed. Because now I see that I live in a created world and I now have a purpose in my life. And now in Christ, I've been given a whole new life and a whole new beginning. It's the work of the Spirit. It's what we've been looking at the Gospel of John, and John you know, talked about uh, the, the, the great, the, the first miracle of Jesus in chapter 2 at the wedding. And then what follows that is chapter 3, which talks about Nicodemus and being born again. And I kind of like where, you know, that, uh, what uh, chapter 2 talks about with uh, changing the water into wine. And the way that the scenario comes up there, he talks about days. And some people, as I know Pastor Nate came up with it in his email saying, a seventh day and not necessarily a literal Sabbath, I kind of count with some other people that it's six days. And to me, if it goes back to Genesis chapter uh, three, Genesis chapter one in the prologue talking about in the beginning was the word. And then all of a sudden we go to uh, uh, chapter two and it talks about Jesus being able to recreate the molecules of water into wine he then can change because him being the creator can then create a new heart and a new mind in Nicodemus. And so I look at this and i just saying, this is uh, John telling us that we have Jesus, the very creator, as the Lamb of God, as the Son of God, as, as um, John the Baptist has been testifying. But also in John, in chapter 3, we see that Jesus is recreating us. And so he tells Nicodemus, who should know better, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, unless you're born anew, unless something changes in your life. And I think that's what you know, Paul is talking about, and I think that's what John's gospel is about, is, is talking about here, talking about this is Jesus, the very first miracle that takes us all the way back to Genesis about the creation. And we know that from Colossians that Jesus, we talk about him being the creator of things that we see and things that we don't see. So, the, so what we, we now have here is that the Spirit of God has given us a new mind. And so we have a new way of walking. Verse 6 says, for to set the mind on the flesh. Setting the mind is a word with continuous action, meaning that we never stop setting our minds. We never stop recalibrating in our brains. What is it that we want to do? What is it that we want to get out of life? For to set the mind on the flesh, what is the outcome? Death. Spiritual death, physical death. That's what... That's what Genesis 3 was all about, talking about how God threw Adam and Eve out of the garden. They were separated. There was this great communion with the Father, and then all of a sudden, they denied the Word of God, and God separated them. He says in Romans, and it says in other places in Paul's letters, that we have been separated by God from our sins. We are, we are aliens 
to God. We are enmity with God. This is what he says here as he goes on in verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is an enemy, a hostile to God. That's where we are in Adam. Hostile, enemies. Oh, I don't hate God. Oh, yes, you do. I don't hate God. Yes, you do. That's what the Bible teaches. If you don't love Jesus, if you don't love the Father through Jesus, if you don't feel the Spirit of the Holy Spirit working in your life and watching you bear fruit, because remember, just because you're bearing fruit doesn't make you a Christian. You can do all these things and still not be a believer. I had a lady come up to me in my old job, and, we were t- and they all knew that I was a pastor because I shared it and talked about it, and I, had, you know, I, 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 I took a... I, uh, uh, manage uh, 300 people to 500 people. And I'd walk around and, and people would talk about me. You're a pastor. Yeah. She goes, well, I'm a Christian too. I said, you're a Christian? She goes, yeah. She goes, I speak in tongues. I said, sorry, lady, that doesn't make you a Christian. Well, why doesn't it? Because I said, it doesn't make you a Christian. That's not what the Bible teaches that makes you a Christian. And so I walked away and she was rejected and I don't care. Because <laughs> I went back to her and I'm saying, you need to go study your Bible. That doesn't make you a Christian at all. There's a lot, you know, the angel of light is counterfeit. And so we see now that he's saying here that that the mind that is set on the flesh is an enemy of God. It's not just breaking some rules. It's a hatred for God. For it does not submit to God's law out of its will, out of your will and my will. Before we became Christians, we said, uh-uh to God. No way, God. I'll give you the time I got. I'll give you the life I've got. I'll give you the money I got. But that's all I'm giving you. It, it, we do not, we're rebellious people. We do not submit to the law of God. And something that I don't know if you really believe is that We cannot. We are unable. We are unable to do that. The Westminster Confession says it really well. It says this, The man and woman in his state of innocence, in their state of innocence, had freedom and ability to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God, and yet not unalterably so that he might fall from it. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has completely lost all ability to choose anything spiritually good that accompanies salvation. Therefore, an unregenerate man, because he is a or woman, is opposed to that which is good, is dead in sin, and is unable by their own strength to convert themselves and to prepare themselves to be converted." When God converts a sinner and brings him to the state of grace, he frees them from his natural bondage to sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. That's Philippians 2.13. God not only gives us the will, but the ability to do because our free will is not free. We cannot do that. We cannot will peace with God. We cannot will forgiveness. We cannot will to be born again. The Spirit of God has to come in us. 
Philipp, uh, Hebrew, I'm sorry, uh, Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, that no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. John tells us that no one can come to the Lord unless the Spirit of God draws them. If we are dead, we are dead. If the Bible means we're dead, we're dead. We cannot raise ourselves, we cannot do anything. R.C. Sproul used to tell one, it's like, the ability of dropping a bucket down a well and saying to the bucket, okay, pull yourself back up. It's in, we're, we're totally enabled. We cannot do these things. And it says here in, in Romans, right? I mean, I don't know whether people like it or not, but it says there's no one good. No one's good-hearted. There's no innocence. There's no one good. Now, people can be, yeah, they're good-hearted people. They do good things. We like them. I love those people in my life. But when it comes to the Lord, there's nobody good. There's nobody good-hearted. And you've heard this, right? No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. But I'm trying. I do my best. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their feet are swift to shed blood. I don't do that. Yes, you do. Their lives and paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no fear of God in their eyes. This is... This is biblical anthropology. This is who we are. So when we're coming across someone and we're sitting next to them, we want to find out if they're truly a believer. And many times if they're worrying about having peace with God and worrying about disappointing God and worrying about their salvation, it's a very good sign that they may be a believer and the Spirit of God is working in their hearts. But how do you encourage them? Oh, don't worry. It'll be all right. That's not going to help anybody. I'm going to take that home because such and such told me it's going to be all right. How many people have been in terrible situations and it's going to be all right and it turns out to even be worse than what it was? We cannot. We cannot be righteous. We cannot be holy. As it says here, verse 8, this is the clincher. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's it. I want to please God. Well, then we've got to understand what God has said to us so that you understand what it means to be at peace with God. That's what he's talking about, life and uh, peace, it says in the, the Scriptures. It gives us life and peace. Now, life and, and peace are not just now. Those are End-time words, eschatological words, those are the ones that have eternal significance. The word zoe in Greek is the word that is used about eternal life. And peace is not just peace now. It is that, at totally at peace with God for all eternity. And death is the same. It's meaning not just death now. It means a death that you're really dead, that you are never going to see God unless you see God, him looking at you and saying, I told you so while you're in hell. 
That's how hard it is. That's what the Bible teaches. That's how we find out. We tell people the truth from this perspective and that perspective. But when you're a believer, I want you to be able to come to this passage. This is such a great verse and great passage is that it's the gospel. It talks about justification. It talks about sanctification. Don't be frightened by those words. Understand what they mean. To understand that, that you that no way, no how, no matter what you do in your life, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Now, we're going to get to chapter 8 when it talks about these things, but I want to tell you, right, we get to chapter 8. What are these things? Who can separate us from the love of God? He says, can tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, nothing will separate us from the love of God. But folks, they hurt like heck. They hurt. They cause pain. They are not just something we sing to. These are things that really hurt us. These are things that can draw blood and draw pain and draw suffering. And while we're going through those things, these are the things that we have to find that are bedrock beliefs in our lives. What is the God? What do we confess to God? Who do we say that he is? If he disappoints us, it's not his fault. It's our fault. So we just don't want to go to somebody and say, it'll be all right. God works all things together for good. Yes, but they hurt like the Dickens, Jim. They do. It does. So what do we give that to them? We tell them that there's no condemnation. God will never turn you away. You will never go to hell. You will never be separated from Christ. He will never look at you and say, be gone. I don't know who you are. But Jesus, didn't I do this? And didn't I do that? And wasn't I a deacon and a trustee and a deaconess and a pastor and a missionary and everything else? Didn't I do all these things? And he's going to say, I don't know who you are. What dreaded words to hear. But that's why this is so important. That's why this is so beautiful and so wonderful. That God has made a way because our flesh is so rebellious that the law can't do its work in us. You tell me not to do something and I'm going to wonder why. And then I'm going to think about, should I try to do it anyway? That's the way we're made up. That's what sin has done to our hearts. But we're thankful. We praise God that this great news is about where we, how we have a new walk, how we think and who we are. It's not just about doing these things. It's who we are. We are now in Christ. We are now in communion with God in Christ. That's what in Christ, 164 times in Paul's writing is the word in Christ. It's meaningful. It's purposeful. There's a reason for it there because it is there in Christ that we have eternal life, that we have forgiveness of sins, and you can say that God can't love you any more than he loves you now because we're in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we 
come before you now as we read your word, as we hear it read to us. Lord, that I pray that it is not my explanation or anything about it, but yet it is your words from the Holy Spirit working in their hearts to either confirm that they love you, to know that they are believers, to know by your Spirit that they sense your presence in their lives, to give them the assurance in their hearts that it is not based upon anything else but Jesus' life and love and righteousness. And there for those who are here today, Lord, that may not know you, who may feel secure in their religion, Lord, I pray that these words would trouble them. Pray, Lord, that they would seek some counsel, that they would desire to know what it is they should do to have eternal life, and that is run to Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that as we gather together each week, that, Father, we are reminded of the great and glorious grace that we have in Jesus. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.